This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Bree Newsom, then 30 years old, became famous in June of 2015 when she climbed the flagpole outside the State House in Columbia, South Carolina, and took down the Confederate flag. Molly and Dana is a tribal ambassador of the Penobscot Nation who has, among other things, been a leader in the movement to discontinue the use of Indian mascots in Maine. They spoke about the legacy of systemic racism in the U.S. and what can be done to dismantle it at an event in Blue Hill last weekend sponsored by Americans Who Tell the Truth. WERU was among the many co-sponsors of the event, and it was recorded by Matt Murphy. Today on Main Currents, we bring you the first hour of their talk. A recording of the entire two-hour event, which included a question-and-answer session, will also be available along with the show on the WERU archives. Now we bring you their talk, the first hour, introduced by Robert Shetterly of Americans Who Tell the Truth, who was the moderator. So right now we're going to bring up Bree Newsom and Molly and Dana. Bree is a filmmaker, an activist, a musician, and you know, acquired some fame a few years ago when she climbed a flagpole in Columbia, South Carolina and took down the Confederate flag. Um, Molly and Dana is a ambassador of the Penobscot Nation. She is also very much an activist. Um, probably a lot of you know about the work she's done about getting you know, all of the schools in Maine that had um, you know, native uh, mascots to remove them, and it's now complete. So, and now she's, work, she's working now on having this, the state uh, I mean, a lot of communities in Maine have uh, adopted Indigenous Peoples Day in place of Columbus Day, but uh, the, the movement now, thanks to her, is to have it done as a state um, decree, if you might, something like that, right? Is that what do you call that? A decree or something? A proclamation. There we go. <laughs> that sounds much better than decree. <laughs> so, um, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna begin by asking them. A few questions, some general things. You know, we, uh, we, we had a discussion last night, and I promised them that I would ask some different questions. Each question, each, each question I'm going to ask is going to begin with just a word, and then I'm going to fill that in a little bit about uh, what that word might mean, and then ask them to interpret it. But the first thing I want to do is, is very similar to what we've done before, because I think it's really important that you both just tell your stories, you know, tell the story of your journey towards activism and also your story of identity, you know, how this, you know, what you've become, how you became that, what it means to you, okay? Molly, do you want to begin? Sure, uh, hello. I was raised on Indian Island, the Penobscot Nation. I'm a Penobscot tribal citizen. Uh, both my parents are from there. I had a very kind of upbringing very rich in the culture. Uh, my father was chief of the tribe when I was in high school, so I, I got kind of a front row seat to a lot of things, and I, I was very blessed to be very rooted in my identity early on. Um, the first kind of imagery that I had from the like, dominant society, I guess, of, of how my people were seen was the Disney movie Peter Pan. Um, and I'm going to say two words tonight that I never ever say because they're awful words, but it's squaw and redskin. So if you hear me say that, it, it's just for the sake of telling the story. 
Um, so in this movie, you know, Peter Pan and his friends or whatever, they, they find like an Indian camp in Neverland, which I'm not sure how that even makes sense. Um, <laughs> it's like a mystery, you know, far away. Um, and the, the Indians are all kind of very red faced and red skinned. Um, they have big noses. They're very much the caricature. Uh, the behavior is very over the top. You see the classic stereotypes of the the savage brave kind of scary and then like the you know promiscuous woman tiger lily princess type thing um that that we see even later on in the candy coated disney pocahontas um so that was kind of my first and, and i was really little and it was kind of like I separated it. I said, well, well, that's that's that, and, and this is who I am. So it, I, I kind of repressed it, I guess, and, and didn't think much about it. When I was in high school, um, I was watching the high school basketball tournaments on TV with my dad, and the Skowhegan Indians were playing the Nokomis Warriors. So it was like, you know, it was a field day of, of racism and you know, terrible behavior. And um, So we're watching this on TV, and I grew up, right next to Old Town, who was the Indians, and I had never thought much about mascot use. I, I didn't um, go to high school there, uh, so I, I was a little bit removed from it, but seeing these peers of mine wearing fake feathers, wearing fake war paint, um, jumping around in like fake Indian dress and doing like the, you know, the Hollywood chanting and stuff, I looked at my father and I said, what is this? You know, I, I said, is this what people think we do? This is so stupid. Like, we're not a stupid, silly people. Um, and we don't look like that. And we don't act like that. And, and it wouldn't, I would find out in later years that it goes much deeper than being angry or being offended. This is assuming the identity of a people group you have historically oppressed. And that's a problem, uh, as we've seen play out over the years. Uh, you kind of, you embrace the you know, the brave warrior spirit and all the good things and the feathers and, you know, the things that look cool, but you're not embracing the experience of the historical oppression and the trauma and the, um, the attempted genocide of our people that has manifested itself in addiction and high rates of suicide and poverty and uh, these, these cycles of dysfunction that affect us all very deeply. You know, I, I was not... Uh, given a smallpox blanket, and I was not ripped from my home by the government. But I feel the effects of that, and we carry it in our very DNA. So, so there's a lot going on in my young mind at 15, but I, I think the kind of the, the most dominant expression of that is anger. You know, it's what, what, so how can I use this anger to fuel some kind of change? Um, I can sit around and stew in this and, and boo the games and, and talk badly about it or I can try to do something. So I, I had some mentors that were very good uh, adults who have been doing this kind of activism work. And I started going to schools and talking as a peer educator to uh, students that were around my age. And I remember walking into Scarborough High School and I was on a panel to talk about their Redskins mascot. And every student in the school was in the gym and they all had Redskins jerseys on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they booed me. <laughs> yeah, I was like 16 years old and, um, you know, probably face full of acne. I didn't like how I looked anyway. You know, it was like, it's already a rough time for you. So, um, so to be that kind of shook, that's why I say now, people say, well, you must get nervous. This, this must scare you. 
Uh, I've, I've been in some really scary rooms, so it, it takes a lot to make me nervous now. Um, so I started in activism that way, and it was more of, you know, I would show up to these places and, and give my story. You know, I, I saw this in a game, and, and this is why it affected me. This is why it hurt me. Uh, and then as I got further along in my life, I learned about the scientific re research and the data and the various uh, professional organizations that have called for the removal of these mascots, citing the real harm it causes to children, not just Native children, but all children. Uh, and how they really promote racial tension and that basing things on stereotypes isn't healthy for anybody. And my work has evolved. I was elected to the tribal council and I was able to take the kind of interest in politics and um, shadow the chief a little bit and, and do things and help him out. And then the position of ambassador came about because we had removed our representative from the legislature. So we had kind of this whole and I had a very good job, <laughs> and I was going to take a pay cut, and I said, I got to do that. <laughs> I said, that's, that's where this is going in life. So I was having lunch with the chief. Uh, we were in D.C. together, and I, I said, I want that ambassador job. What do I do? And he like, looked at me. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of set my sights on it. I had to apply against the uh, previous rep to the legislature. He also wanted the job, and I just kind of... I, I knew I had to tone down a lot of myself in order to take this job, and it's taught me a lot of discipline. Uh, I got a hot temper and a big mouth, so <laughs> now when I talk, I'm always talking for the nation. So it's really um, matured me in a lot of ways. And my job now is um, I'm kind of the government relations for the whole tribe. So I'm in D.C., I'm in Augusta, I do a lot of things like this, talking to school groups and stuff. So I'm still very much an activist, but I've had to channel it in different ways. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the scope of my journey. And as uh, Robert mentioned, we did successfully rid the state of Indian high school mascots very recently, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that discussion tonight, but it's very... Uh, clear what positive social change takes and that it can happen. So thanks for having me here tonight. Hi, good evening. Thank you for having me. Forgive me if I sneeze in the middle of talking at any point. <laughs> Caught a little head cold. Um, but no, I always begin by telling everyone that prior to 2013, I never would have imagined that I would be identifying as an activist and certainly never would have foreseen myself participating in a protest that could carry the risk of arrest. Um, when I look back on my life, though, it makes a lot of sense that I ended up scaling the flagpole in South Carolina. Um, so I, I, was, I was born in Durham, North Carolina, but did all of my grade school in Columbia, Maryland. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. It's like halfway between D.C. and Baltimore, and it was a planned community um, that was really designed with a lot of ideas in mind of, of creating more equity, you know, in a community. So I went to mixed income schools. Um, we had, you know, the, the community was just designed in a lot of ways that encouraged diversity. So it was an extremely diverse community that I grew up in, but there was still a lot of inequality. There was still a lot of issues, and I was primarily aware of that because of the work that my mom did. She was an educator while I was growing up, and a lot of her work centered on closing what they called the achievement gap, right? Um, which I 
would prefer to identify as the resource gap because it's really about the gap that exists in resources for certain children. And so um, a lot of her work was about, you know, how do we address the edu educational inequality um, for children who are from poor households, um, minority households, households where the first language is in English. And so language is also um, a barrier for them. And so I was growing up both aware of how I benefited, right, from having um, two college-educated parents who were both teachers, um, and aware that there was still there were still these issues that existed. Um, I also grew up with my grandmother in the household. My grandmother was born in 1920, South Carolina. Um, and so she was there the whole time that I was growing up helping to raise me. And of course, she's sharing with me, you know, stories of her childhood, stories of experiencing segregation and, and racism in the South. And it happens to be the case that on both sides of my family, my family never really moved too far from the plantations where they had been enslaved. So I was growing up constantly with an awareness that I am the first generation in my family to attend integrated public schools. And even though I am, you know, born on the other side, born about 20 years or so after the civil rights movement and in many ways benefiting from the gains of uh, the, the gains of the civil rights movement, that history was never really too far from my consciousness just because of the context in which um, I grew up. But the main message that I received, I would say from the adults around me was, you know, be aware of the sacrifice that people have made, right? These are sacrifices, these are struggles that your ancestors went through so that you would not have to. Um, and so now, you know, the best way that you can kind of pay that forward or, you know, the responsibility that you have is to be the best that you can be. Go get your education. Um, my father used to love to say to me, you know, we want you to enjoy yourself and support yourself, right? So go find, you know, a good profession that you enjoy and, you know, make a living. And so that was, you know, where, where my focus was. My mom really, um, you know, uh, really emphasized to me the importance of being an engaged citizen. Um, she would volunteer at the polls, and I even have memories of her, you know, taking me into the polling booth with her to show me how she voted, and, you know, she just really emphasized to me, like, all the struggle and sacrifice that went into having that right and how important it was. Um, but they really, you know, weren't encouraging me to be an activist. I never really attended any protest or anything while I was growing up. Um, I was mainly focused on being a filmmaker. I wanted to, you know, have a career uh, in in, in making film. I majored in film and television um, at NYU, and that was always my goal. Um, again, when I look back on it, you know, my concern about social issues and politics was definitely there in a lot of the work that I did. I did um, a short animated film in high school that focused on religious tensions in the Middle East. Um, when I was in college, I did a PSA encouraging youth voter turnout. Um, but I was not participating in, you know, any protest marching in the street or anything like that. Um, I did a short film my senior year uh, of college that ended up doing very well in the film festival circuit. And one of the festivals I was in was sponsored by this big ad agency in New York City, and they invited me to come be artist in residence. So I ended up um, back in New York City at about 2000, this would have been about 2011, 2012, and at that time, Occupy Wall Street was going on, actually not far from the where the ad agency was. Um, and if you are at all familiar with rent in New York, it is extremely expensive. So the stipend that I was getting um, as a, an artist in residence was not enough to cover my rent in Harlem. And so I would do, I would earn extra money by doing a, a guest artist teaching stint um, at a, a film high school in the Bronx. So my morning was, you know, spent in the Bronx, obviously, again, being made aware of uh, inequality in education. 
and then I was going down to you know the Hudson area where there are like billions of dollars concentrated um, in the advertising industry. Um, I was very much in support of the Occupy movement. I thought it was really important, the issues that they were raising around wealth inequality. I went out and marched with them one time, but then I went back and I sat in my nice office <laughs> um, you know, in, in the ad agency. Um, I did at that time become what they called a hashtag activist, you know, um, where I would, you know, use social media to kind of raise awareness around, you know, different things that, um, you know, were going on that I thought was important for people to be aware of. Um, but the major turning point for me, the reason why I kind of pinpoint 2013 um, as the turning point for me was because there were a couple of events uh, that were happening at that time. One was the Trayvon Martin case. In, uh, that was happening in Sanford, Florida. Uh, I'm sure you are aware this was a young boy who was in, walking in the neighborhood where he lived, um, was stalked and profiled by somebody else who had taken it upon himself to you know, call himself a neighborhood watchman, um, and was shot and killed. And the entire way um, that the case played out um, you know, just, just showed a complete disregard for Trayvon's life. And it was very clear that it, you know, if he had been a young white teenager, it would not have played out in the same way. Um, the other thing that happened after I finished my residency in New York City, I came back to North Carolina um, in, the, in the midst of the Moral Monday movement, which was, was going on at that time. This was um, a movement organized by Reverend Barber and the North Carolina State Chapter of the NAACP. And part of what happened in North Carolina in 2008, um, North Carolina went for Barack Obama, and that was the first time that the state of North Carolina had elected a Democrat for president since the end of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, the students there had a lot to do with that. Um, we have obviously a lot of universities in North Carolina, and um, students are a very powerful voting bloc. Um, and so in response to that, in, in 2010, we had, at the same time, like the Tea Party was, you know, kind of taking off. We had this extremist takeover of the legislature in North Carolina. And these extremist Republicans just set about trying to basically undo everything that had made the election of Barack Obama possible. They redrew um, our district maps. They just did this extreme gerrymander. If you've seen the news, I'm sure you've seen that this is still an ongoing issue um, that we are dealing with. And then they began systematically trying to take away voting rights. Um, they were helped in this effort in the year 2013 when the United States Supreme Court basically gutted the Voting Rights Act and removed all the teeth from it. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This Americans Who Tell the Truth event featured Molly and Dana and Bree Newsom. It was recorded in Blue Hill on March 29th. So when I got back to North Carolina, that, that is what was going on. I had a friend who worked at NAACP, and he invited me out to one of the protests. And I had been following kind of the national situation more. I hadn't really been as plugged into what was going on in North Carolina. And it was so shocking what I witnessed. So I went to a protest on Monday, right? I saw this bill. This, it was called House Bill 589. It was, at that point, this five-page bill. And the gist of it was that students could no longer use their student IDs to vote. So, imagine, so, so basically what the state of North Carolina was saying to, if you imagine you're a student at UNC, right, the ID that the state has issued to you is no longer recognized by the state, right, which makes absolutely no sense. 
Um, and that's, that was the situation that we were protesting. Overnight between that Monday and Tuesday, the bill went from the House to the Senate and they added 50 more pages to the bill that they had to have had sitting in the wings because there's no way that you just draft 50 pages overnight, right? And these 50 pages were more explicitly targeting black voters. It was clear that they had identified every method of voting that was most popular among African-American voters, and they sought to do away with it. Sunday voting, early voting, um, they took a number of, of measures to try to shut down polling locations, both on campuses and in predominantly black communities. Um, and at that time, North Carolina was still kind of viewed as one of the progressive states of the South, right? People, you know, a lot of people are familiar with like the history of Terry Sanford's administration and um, there's kind of this image of North Carolina being the more progressive state. And a lot of what they were trying to do was really kind of flying under the radar. So we made a decision, when I say we, um, myself and um, a group of uh, other young adults working with the youth and college division of NAACP, we decided that we would do a sit-in. Um, that Wednesday. So we, we went up to the Capitol, you know, we sat there and we listened to them debating the bill, and then we went into Tom Tillis's office. He's a U.S. Senator now, but at that time, he was Speaker of the House of North Carolina, and we did a sit-in, and we basically, you know, refused to leave until he agreed to meet with us about this bill. Now, of course, we didn't really expect Tom Tillis, you know, to come down there and actually meet with us, and of course he didn't. They had us arrested, but we succeeded in bringing the attention to it. You know, it was all over the news in North Carolina, and they were not able to just sneak that bill by. Later, that bill ended up being struck down. Uh, they passed it, but the law ended up being struck down in the court, which found that it targeted black voters with surgical precision is how um, they put it. So at that point, I was all in. You know, by that point, I, I, I was just completely all in. There was no way I could see myself, you know, going back to, you know, sitting in an office or even to my career pursuits at that point with everything that was going on. And I think part of what was so shocking to my conscience about that was, again, you know, I had grown up with this sense that, you know, the civil rights movement came to a conclusion, we, and the Voting Rights Act was one of you know, the pinnacle achievements of that movement. So for that to be undone, and then to see how quickly people were ready to, you know, roll the clock back all the way to 1955, basically, um, just made me feel that I couldn't afford to do anything else except um, be in the streets protesting at that time. Um, the sit-in that we did in North Carolina was also a show of solidarity with the Dream Defenders, who at that time were staging an occupation at the Florida State House, you know, in protest of not just the Trayvon Martin case, but also the gun laws in in Florida, which was part of what had legalized Trayvon's murder, essentially. Um, so I traveled down to Florida. We spent some time with the Dream Defenders. Um, the issue of police brutality quickly came to the forefront as, you know, one of the issues that we wanted to, to lift up when I was in uh, North Carolina that same summer of 2013. We had the case of Jonathan Farrell. This was a young black man. He crashed his car in a neighborhood. He went knocking on doors looking for help. Um, a resident called the police. The police showed up and shot him 12 times and killed him. Um, he was unarmed. Um, and then, of course, the next year in 2014, we had a series of high-profile cases, Eric Garner being strangled to death in Staten Island. Um, John Crawford was shot at a Beaver Creek, Ohio, um, yeah, Beaver Creek, Ohio Walmart. He picked up a BB gun that was for sale in Walmart. Somebody called the police. The police came in and shot him within seconds. Um, I went up to Ohio with the Ohio Students Association demanding the release of the tapes. And we did succeed in getting the tapes released, but again, there were you know, no charges, nothing was done in that case. And then of course, in August of 2014, um, the, the incident 
of Mike Brown being killed in Ferguson became, you know, an explosive moment. It had kind of been building to that time. And there were, you know, those sustained riots for weeks in Missouri. Um, in response to seeing the situation in Ferguson, I really kind of transitioned into being a community organizer. So I went from being, you know, an activist who was kind of traveling from place to place to participate in other people's protests to really trying to organize in my community because we recognized that it was only a matter of time before what happened in Ferguson happened in Charlotte because all of the conditions were the same, right? Um, and it was that group of people, that collective that I began organizing with in Charlotte who participated in taking the flag down in South Carolina. Um, I know there are a lot of people who think I just hopped up that morning and you know made the decision, including my parents. They, until they saw that I had like equipment on and everything and they knew there had to have been some more you know, organizing going on, they thought that I just hopped up that morning and, and went down there and did it. Um, but, but in fact, what happened was, you know, I, I grew up, because my family's from South Carolina, I was always aware of the Confederate flag. That has long been a thing. You know, some people think that it only became a controversy after the shootings in Charleston, but that had long been a controversy, um, particularly in that area. And I remember in the year 2000 when they reached a compromise over the issue of it and they decided to move the flag from the dome of the Capitol. It was originally raised over the Capitol building in 1961. Um, they said that they were doing it to commemorate uh, 100 years since the start of the Civil War, which would have been 1960, so that math makes no sense. Um, but what was actually happening in 1961 were sit-in protests, right? Um, and in fact, they raised the flag just months after um, a very important sit-in protest that took place in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Um, so in the year 2000, after you know years of boycotts organized by the NAACP, they agreed to move it from the dome to the lawn of the Capitol. But at that point, they took a number of other measures to further protect it. They passed into law that the flag couldn't be lowered for any reason unless there was a two-thirds approval from the majority in the state house. Um, they also took measures to physically protect the flag. They designed it with this internal pulley system that I'm sure you will never see on any other flagpole. Um, so you couldn't just like walk up to it and lower it, you know, with a rope on the outside. Um, they also built this four foot tall spoked fence, like this wide perimeter fence around it so that it wasn't easy for anyone, you know, to just walk up to it and, and access um, the pole. So that's kind of where the situation was. It was kind of like at this, this standoff standstill, the NAACP still, you know, persisting with its boycott until 2015 when Dylan Roof, this is a young white supremacist in his early 20s, who grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. So he's growing up seeing this flag flying above you know, the official government building. He drove down to Charleston, South Carolina, entered a historically black church, Mother Emanuel AME Church, which has um, very deep historical significance. Um, for South Carolina, this church dates back to you know, pre-Civil War era. Um, and murdered, brutally murdered nine black people during a prayer meeting of all things, you know, to go in and sit down with people as they are praying and then to brutally slay them in this way. Um, and it, it, was, it was absolutely devastating. It was shocking um, on a number of levels. We had not at that point seen that level of violence. Um, it was very reminiscent of um, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, you know, in, in Birmingham in 1963. Um, it was deeply devastating for me personally. I did not 
personally know the people who were killed there, but I was one degree of separation removed from several of them. Um, Clementa Pinckney, who was the pastor of the church there, he grew up in the town where my brother-in-law was from, and he was always known as like, you know, the kid that everybody looked up to. He was kind of like the big brother that everybody um, aspired to be. Um, Tawanza Sanders was friends with one of my friends, and he was killed that night. Um, it was also shocking to me because there was nothing that we were doing in Charlotte that was different from Charleston, right? Um, and black churches are often hubs of community organization for us. So we were having our own, you know, civil rights meetings at an AME church there in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and so it, it was very devastating at that time in the movement. This came just a couple of months after the Walter Scott case. I don't know if you remember the Walter Scott case, which occurred in April of 2015 in North Charleston. Um, Walter Scott was a black man. He was pulled over by a white police officer, Michael Slager. Um, Walter Scott started running away. Michael Slager shot him in the back, um, killed him, then walked up to him and tried to plant evidence on his body. And the only reason that we know about this, that this happened, was because somebody just happened to be walking by with a cell phone and recorded it. Um, and to give you a sense of the climate in North Charleston, the person who recorded this did not feel safe going to the police. They went to an attorney, and together with their attorney, released it to the media. Clementa Pinckney, who was the pastor of Mother Emanuel, just weeks before getting gunned down in his own church, he was a state senator and he had succeeded in getting body camera legislation passed in response to that case. So this was all of the context that was you know, surrounding this, this horrific incident in Charleston. Because Clementa Pinckney was a state senator, he was given a formal procession. Um, a formal funerary, funerary procession in Columbia. So we had a situation where they're processing Clementa Pinckney's casket through the streets of Columbia, South Carolina. The United States flag was lowered to half staff. The state flag of South Carolina was lowered to half staff, but the Confederate flag was still at the top of the pole because of this law that they had passed. And part of what was so deeply offensive to me was that the conversation, the, the conversation in South Carolina, the national conversation at that time, was not about what were the conditions in South Carolina that created Dylan Roof? What were the conditions in South Carolina that created this horrific incident in Charleston? But instead, the focus was on the display of the Confederate flag and why we're refusing to even lower the Confederate flag to half staff, right? Um, so in that context, I said, yes, I will definitely go back to jail if there is a way that we can take this flag down. But I wasn't sure how we could do it. There was a friend of mine who I had been organizing with in Charlotte, and he had previously organized with um, the Occupy Charlotte movement. This was before I had gotten to Charlotte. And there was a group of activists that he had been working with. They were predominantly white and predominantly environmentalist activists. And one of them was aware of a method that they had used for like scaling trees, right? He went down there, he looked at the pole, and he said, you know, I think somebody could probably scale to the top. We, if we had one person who could help somebody hop over the fence, and then that person could scale to the top, we could take the flag down. So once we developed a method, we came together, half of us that night had never met the other half. <laughs> and I think it's a testament to our mutual friend, Yin, that you know we, we were all of the feeling like, well, if Yin says you're good, then you're good, right? So half of us were predominantly white, who had been involved in Occupy Charlotte, and the other half were predominantly black and Latino who had been organizing around police brutality in Charlotte. 
And we came together, and of course, the first question was, are we going to do this? We said yes. Um, first of all, I don't believe that South Carolina would have taken that flag down had it not been for the added pressure of our protest. Um, but we decided, yes, like we, we cannot continue with this, this process of, you know, letting the state of South Carolina determine what is dignity and, you know, what is humane, um, that we, it's important to make this, this statement of civil disobedience. So once we decided we were going to do it, the next question, of course, is who can physically scale the pole, who can put themselves at risk of being arrested? Um, that narrowed it down to about three of us. We were all three women. I was the only person of color. And of course, being a black woman, having this personal historical connection uh, to South Carolina, um, I felt very confident as serving as kind of like a spokesperson for the action. That's how I ended up being the person. And of course, we recognized what a powerful image that would be to see a black woman taking down the Confederate flag in South Carolina. So once it was clear that I was gonna be in that role, we thought through what, what all do we wanna kind of communicate visually with this? We're taking down a, a symbol of white supremacy and, and basically kind of creating a new symbol with this action. And that's how we decided that it should be James Tyson, that it should be a white man who should volunteer to help me over the pole, you know, stand guard as I climbed and then be arrested alongside me in a show of solidarity. Um, and we did that because my climb, even though that was logistically how it had to be done, right, um, I was able to kind of employ a bit of performance art. And so then my scaling the flagpole would kind of symbolize this prolonged struggle to dismantle racism. And James's presence would symbolize this, not only the um, centuries-long uh, history of racial solidarity that has existed in the movement, but the very fact that that is what is necessary. Um, to dismantle the system, it cannot only be dismantled by those who experience racism, but also by those who benefit from it. Um, and so that's how, we, that's how we ended up, you know, doing that. Um, I had planned to do the whole thing in, in silence, but, you know, once I got on the pole and the police realized what was going on, and, you know, they came over and they're telling me, you know, come down, you're going to be arrested. I had to be verbal, you know, and so, I, you know, I'm saying to them, you know, this is a nonviolent action. I'm getting the flag, and that's the extent of it, and I'm you know, prepared uh, to, to be arrested. Um, as I neared the top, a police supervisor came over and directed the officers at the bottom to tase me. So they had three tasers trained on me at one point as I'm attached to this metal pole, and of course, were they to shoot me full of electricity, you know, I could have been electrocuted. And if you have seen any of the photos or video footage, you might notice that James is holding onto the pole as I'm coming back down, and that's because he held onto the pole and he said, if you electrocute her, you'll have to electrocute me too. And he refused to let go until I got back down, and then they de-escalated. You know, so again, it, it was not just a symbolic show of, of a racial solidarity, but a very real instance of him exercising his privilege in that moment for the benefit of us dismantling racism, right? Um, I, I, don't want to, I don't know if I'm talking too much. I, I don't want to go into uh, uh, so much detail about it. But, but yeah, and I mean, of course, since that time, that became such a, a powerful symbol um, and such a clear demonstration, I think, of nonviolent civil disobedience, which I think is part of what, what made it, ended up making it such a powerful um, demonstration. And so I just, I continue to um, travel and speak as I'm, as I'm doing now to kind of talk about these issues. Um, because while I have a lot of hope for the future and what we can do right now, I'm also deeply, gravely concerned um, about the situation that we are in right now because I can really see it going either way, um, you know, depending on the actions that we take today. Um, a lot of the work that I am doing right now in Charlotte is actually focused on housing stability, um, which is not 
in any way disconnected from any of these other issues that we talk about, be it living wages or um, the criminalization of the poor um, or racism. Um, and so I'm just committed to um, speaking and working and, and figuring out um, how we connect these issues across all these various communities. This is my first time in Maine. I, when we spoke last night in Portland, I was saying how, you know, this is my, my first time meeting Molian and how, you know, I'm learning about the work that she is doing for the first time. But in her words and in her work, I see no separation between the situation that I'm dealing with in the Carolinas. Um, and so I hope that through this conversation, we can shed some new light on how we can all work together. You're listening to Bree Newsom and Molly and Dana speaking at an Americans Who Tell the Truth event in Blue Hill on March 29th. The moderator was Rob Shetterly. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Well, you know, one of the things that's so, so great about this is, I mean, most of us, you know, have heard of these events. None of us has heard, you know, the person who's at the center of it talk about it and give you all the details and, and also the personal story behind it. I think that's, you know, it's invaluable that uh, you're able to do that, you know, both of you. I just want to say a, a little word about, you know, Americans Who Tell the Truth, which I usually do at the beginning, but I didn't. But it's a, you know, this is this big portrait project that's been going on for more than 17 years now. There are now over 240 portraits, and they travel all over the country. And they also, like Mollian said about where she was as a teenager, well, I guess I was like that when I was in my 50s. It took me a while to get there. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a very angry person who needed to find a way to express that uh, in a positive way and, and do something with that anger than, other than just rant. Um, now, some people would look at that and say, you know, what I was really want, hoping to do was sit on a stage with two amazing women like this, and, and uh, that would be a good project. It is a pretty good project. Um, but as you know, we do now an enormous amount of educational work besides the portraits which travel and provide models of citizenship. You know, we also have a, uh, an educational project called the Samantha Smith Challenge, which goes into middle schools all over the state, challenging young people to become like Molly and, you know, and like Bree. And they do, and they love it. And it's a, it's a really great program. Uh, and when we were in the Lyman Moore School just yesterday morning, uh, those kids were incredible in the way they were so hungry to uh, be in touch with this kind of spirit and be able to uh, think that they could respond in, in a similar way. You know? So I think the, the, the next question I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask a couple of more. Um, I want to address Mullion again. You know, when we, you used a couple of times the word systems and systemic. Uh, we hear that word a lot about the issues in this country uh, around different kinds of injustice or attitudes. You know, people say it's a systemic problem. I'd like you both to sort of address what that really means. What do we mean when we say systemic? Uh, and and, and if, a, if a thing is really systemic, uh, how do we approach it? You know, what are, how do we get to causes rather than just, you know, symptoms and, and then deal with what, what we have to do? I, I was, in, in response, I mean, just as a little story, I was in a school in Portland myself a couple of, last week, and I was doing portraits, self-portraits with kids, and they were each doing a self-portrait, then writing words on it about how to, uh, what, what their own definition of justice was. And this one fourth grade girl wrote that uh, justice was like, or injustice was like when you're knitting 
a sweater or something, um, and you get quite a ways along, and you discover that you've made a terrible mistake, and you can't just keep knitting then. She said, what you have to do, this is the what she wrote on her portrait, is you then have to take it out and start over. And I was thinking, hmm, systemic. <laughs> It's a great question. Uh, so right now in, the, uh, in this session of the legislature, we have two bills. Uh, one is to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day for the entire state. And that passed the House overwhelmingly. It's looking like we have the votes in the Senate. Um, and I have talked with the governor about it. So hopefully that will be coming to fruition. The, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, the other bill we'll talk about in a little bit, but the work uh, over the past few years in changing Columbus Day has brought about a lot of discussions that are really relevant to this question. When you think of the word systemic, uh, it kind of triggers things in me. So something is happening on all fronts, and maybe you don't see all of it. it you know, it can be very, very insidious. When you think about the experience of indigenous people in this country, um, it was an attempted genocide. You know, I am not supposed to be here. My daughters are not, where'd they go? <laughs> My daughters are not here. <laughs> um, but we're not supposed to be here, right? Uh, the plan was to wipe us out. And that plan happened in many different ways. When we talk about genocide, it may conjure images of uh, chemical warfare, scalping. Uh, you know, there was a proclamation written by the government that set bounties on the scalps of Penobscot men, women, and children. So it's this document, and I, I've read it very closely, and basically it says, hunt them all, kill as many as you can, bring them in. They had trading posts where you would bring your furs for different animals and Penobscot people. And there, you know, you think about it, it sets a price for a Penobscot child under 12 and, and what you would get for that scalp. And these were people, these were colonists that were out starving in the winter. And this probably, uh, you know, they, they may have been very desperate people and this seemed like a good um, answer. So when you see people as less than human, like this, you know, has occurred to us, it makes it easy to treat them as less than human. You know, you're hunting animals, you're hunting Penobscots, it's, it's what has happened in this country. So that was all kind of in the, the settlement of the country. And then we have the push west and manifest destiny and relocation of tribes. And we feel like that's all ancient history. And what we don't talk about as much is kind of the second wave of genocide. And that was, well, we've moved the Indians, we put them on reservations, um, we've tried to assimilate them and, and make them landowners and homeowners, you know, in these very terrible plots and, and poor situations. And it didn't work. They, they still are clinging to something, and they still have an identity, and it's a problem. They're not fitting in. It's, they're in the way. And Columbus, I think, even though he didn't, didn't step foot here, is credited with a lot of that thinking. You know, these are savages. They're less than human. We need to wipe them out or use them for slavery or, or other things. They're you know, they're in the way of progress. God has given us a mission. Let's wipe out these people. Um, so we have all that going on. So the second wave of that is we're not getting these people to fit in, so let's try to kill the Indian and save the man. 
So they had government-run boarding schools that would come and remove children from families as young as five years old. And these children were picked up from their houses. The parents weren't notified um, beforehand a lot of times. And they were taken miles and miles from home. They didn't know anybody there. Uh, they were beaten for speaking their language. Their hair was cut short. It's just traumatic. It, I can't, as a mother of two children, I can't even imagine how they would react to that. And it goes a step further in a foster care system, where, which uh, I recommend the movie Dawnland. Uh, I know there's been a lot of screenings of it, but it, it really takes an in-depth look into what happened in Maine tribes in this foster care system and kind of things that uh, happened behind closed doors and uh, the system was very corrupt and it took children from the family, same old song and dance, put them in homes, a lot of them were abused. And it was before uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a federal law, was really enforced. And of course, in Maine, we have issues with federal laws applying to Maine tribes because we have a settlement act agreement with the state. So there's a lot of things going on. So what we are left with are people who are still victims of genocide. Uh, they're still living with those traumatic effects. They've had something killed in them, even if it's not their physical body. And when you think about a system of something, we, we assault land, resources, culture, identity, and it's all connected. When we see kids on a basketball court jumping around in feathers and calling themselves Indians, that's still a spoke of the wheel of genocide. It reinforces all the past trauma. It is just as much of a problem. Um, so that, I think, gets to how I view systemic oppression and, and all that sort of thing. How do we get better <laughs> uh, is a big, big question, I think. And I think when we talk about mascots, I know we talked a little bit about this last night, and, and the flag, and, and these symbols, people always say, well, don't you have better things to do? Don't you have bigger problems? You know, people are dying from drug abuse and suicide and all this stuff, and I think stuff like changing mascots, stuff like changing to Indigenous People's Day, it may seem kind of surface, and it may seem silly and, and politically correct and, and liberal and snowflake and however you want to put it, um, but it, it goes very far. It starts important discussions. And when you see us as equals and as humans, we can better advocate for our rights to clean air and water and housing systems and health care and all these kind of things that affect the bigger things. Um, it's got to start somewhere. So in, in the work that I've seen, when, when you put a face on things, uh, when, you know, when I share with you my stories and I talk with you, and uh, you know, another thing mascots do is they put this image in your head of what an Indian is. <laughs> I got a funny story. I, I went to Washington, D.C. in February, and I didn't bring a winter jacket, just because I'm, I don't know, <laughs> a little scattered sometimes. Um, so I'm freezing the whole time. I look like an idiot. You know, everybody else in the group has nice jackets on, and I'm like cold in between buildings. So I went to this underground mall, and I found this nice um, couple, and they were selling jackets outside. And I saw one that was exactly my size, and I, you know, haggled them down a little bit to like a, a nice price for it. And we were talking, and they noticed I had a name tag on. And the older lady, she said, uh, well, what conference are you with? And I said, United Southern and Eastern Tribes, and I'm, I'm an ambassador for a Native American tribe. She goes, no, you're not. <laughs> I said, yes, I am. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, she goes, you're an Indian? 
I say, yeah, she goes, no, no. She goes, you're Puerto Rican. <laughs> and I said, no, Puerto Ricans are lovely, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm sorry. So it's funny that, um, that these mascots say, I, I am a you know, darker skinned person. I, a lot of people don't question that I'm, I'm native, but a lot of people do. And, uh, and it's funny, my sister, we have the same two parents. Uh, we have a lot of similar features, but she's very, very light skinned. She has strawberry blonde hair. She's got blue eyes. Um, so for her, when, when we see these stereotypes and if you don't look like that Disney Pocahontas, we have no use for you and we don't know how to deal with it and you're not a real Indian, uh, that's rough and that really, really matters. So when we think about the systems, they're at work in many, many ways. Um, I gave a talk at a school visit and this little boy said, um, it was, it was Indigenous People's Day, but he called it Columbus Day, so we'll, we'll let him slide on that one. And the Redskins were playing the Cowboys uh, football on TV. And he goes, you know what? He goes, I was thinking, we're, we're doing all this fighting about trying to get Indigenous People's Day, and then they got that team playing. He goes, so I told my dad that, that it was kind of weird, and he didn't get it. <laughs> and I said, it's awesome that you got it. I said, and if you can do anything keep speaking up, you know, keep getting through to your dad. I said, because he'll listen to you. Parents listen to their kids. It may take a little while, but, you know, we're, we're planting seeds in each other throughout the generations, I think. So we can start small, we can plant those seeds, and we can affect major positive change uh, and fight all the systems. But I think the, the number one step is being aware of them. And I think a lot of people don't even understand how sports mascots figure into to some of these really, really big things that are still keeping us down. So. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I would, when we use the term the system, what I would describe as the system is white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Like, I think that that is the long version way of saying the system, right? And I think part of the way that the system is able to perpetuate is because we are constantly sold the myth that there is no system. We are constantly deliberately miseducated around the history of this country, and so we're told this myth that America is this magical place that you can come, and regardless of who you are, you can be whatever you want to be, right? Um, we, we are told that there are no you know, systemic barriers to achievement, that it's, it's just simply a matter of, you know, working hard and pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps and rugged individualism and all those things, right? Um, we're not taught about, you know, the history of colonialism or what colonialism really is, right? Um, you know, America was colonized for the purpose of exploiting land, exploiting resources for the enrichment of a nation somewhere else. That's what colonialism is about, right? Um, and the one of the first things that they had to figure out was how are we going to exploit this land? Who's going to do the labor? Who's going to perform the labor of this mass exploitation of the land that we want to do? They first started out with trying to enslave native people and make native people be the labor. That was difficult to do because native people were more familiar with the land. It was harder to uh, keep them trapped, right? And then we know that we had a period of indentured servitude, of using indentured servants. There reached a point, this is the history that we are not taught, 
Um, there reached a point where they were having a hard time keeping control of the new colonies that they were trying to form because indentured white people and the indentured Africans were finding themselves in very similar situations, dealing with you know, very similar circumstances, and were on the verge of revolt, and in some cases were um, beginning to, to actively revolt. And it was from that situation that they began to develop racial-based slavery. So, so we are not, we are often told like, you know, about the pilgrims coming over and then they kind of flash forward to Jamestown and then we flash forward a little bit, you know, further, right? Um, and, you know, we, we get this, the story of how they brought slaves from Africa, right? And we're not really taught much about who these people were, um, the process by which they were taken from the, the land where they were, how they were forcibly uh, transferred over here, and we're not taught much about the system of slavery. And if we are taught about the system of slavery, we're taught very little, and we're taught things like, you know, slavery was just contained to the South until the Civil War, and then it was all over. Um, and of course, that is a major glossing over um, of what actually happened. It would be my strong desire and wish um, that everyone could be educated on the history of the construction of race and ethnicity. Um, because this society, uh, which is organized around white supremacy and this myth of, of, of white racial superiority, um, is, is really organized around people believing in this idea of race that's actually not real. It's, it's not a real thing. Um, and it has never served a purpose outside of systemic racism. That was its purpose. Its purpose was to create a permanent perpetual slave class in this country who would serve as the guaranteed cheap labor force as they continue to exploit the natural resources of this land. Um, the reason that they chose to take people from West Africa is because many of those people had some familiarity with some of the crops that they were trying to grow here um, in America. Um, and similar to what Mullian was, was speaking about, it requires a process of dehumanization. It is not possible to, to commit, carry out an act of genocide. It's not possible to, to enslave people without first going through a process of dehumanizing them. So in order to to dehumanize Africans and you know, create this notion of Negro slaves whose natural and normal condition was to be enslaved, we had to create this whole myth around what it meant to be Negro, right? And so the whole, during this whole period of enlightenment, the enlightenment era, enlightenment era, excuse me, as you are having these scientific developments, as you're having these um, religious, you know, theological developments that are occurring in the Catholic Church, it's also coinciding with European colonialism. And so all of these things are going in, in uh, lockstep with each other. They're developing these, you know, pseudo-scientific racial theories um, about how how the Negro is inferior, you know, is an inferior race. And this is then um, undergirded by the church, you know, which is, uh, uh, you know, saying that uh, these people lack souls, right? That the, the native people are savages and they lack souls. And so that's why it is okay um, for us to displace them from their land and do these things. Um, the Africans lack souls. They're not the same. Um, they're not intrinsically the same as us. And of course, we all know that this type of racism first had its roots in, in Europe following the Inquisition. The first practice in this was the belief that Jews were not the same, right? That anti-Semitism um, is really where it first began, this idea that we are not simply um, a different religion, but are somehow intrinsically, biologically different. There's something in our blood, um, you know, that, that makes us different in some other uh, grade of human being. And, you know, when I say it in this way, it sounds ridiculous and absurd, and I'm sure if I were to go out, you know, and say it in that way to a lot 
lot of people, they'd be like, oh, that's, that's horrible. Of course we're not, you know, different in that way. But the reality is that our system was completely organized around those beliefs and ideas. And we still are living the repercussions of that. Um, it was that ideology that informed racial segregation. So, you know, for a hundred years after the formal end of chattel slavery, we still had another form of, uh, uh, you know, of, of a race-based system that was really just a step above slavery. Um, many of the people who were, you know, leading the civil rights movement, um, like, um, excuse me, John Lewis, Fannie Lou Hamer, these were people who were living as sharecroppers, um, people who were residing on the very land that their ancestors had been enslaved on, and they were earning wages, but they were slave wages. Um, when we look at mass incarceration and, and the prison system today, this is a direct outgrowth and continuation of the system of slavery. Slavery ended and they immediately went to using prison labor as the new form of cheap labor. Um, and this is why we can't separate um, the struggles from the basic issue of the labor struggle. Um, the, the first fundamental question that was asked was how were they going to exploit labor? Um, the racial divisions, the class divisions, the social divisions that came as a result of that have always gone back to the central issue of exploiting land and exploiting labor. Um, I have, since the time that I've been here, I've been learning about the issue over the struggle for water right here in Maine about how you have large corporations who are basically taking all of the water and selling it back to you. They're taking your natural resource and then selling it back to you for a price. And in order to do that again, there has to be a cheapening of the value of the land. We have to reduce our natural resources and our land to some kind of monetary value. The very things that we depend on to live, we're putting a price on it. I mean, can you really put a price on water when you are thirsty, can you really put a price on shelter when you need you know, a place to live? And then there has to be, again, as Moline was saying, there has to be this continual process of dehumanization. Um, I completely agree with, with Molly, and it's not a side issue, and I, I, I understand why people, you know, when they look at the topic of mascots and the topic of symbols, they say it's not a side issue. But if it were a side issue, then people wouldn't make a big deal about it when we talk about taking it down, right? If it weren't a big issue, you'd be like, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead, take down that monument to General Lee. Yeah, we don't mind. We'll go ahead and change the mascot. It's not a big deal. That's not the reaction people have. They have a very deep passionate emotional reaction to it because we all know intrinsically that these symbols are reinforcing a particular social order. Most of the Confederate monuments that exist throughout the South, these were not erected right after the Civil War. In fact, it would have been unthinkable to erect monuments to the, you know, to the Confederacy after the Civil War. Robert E. Lee himself would not have been in support of there being monuments to him as a Confederate general um, after the Civil War. These things were erected in the early 20th century to reinforce the ideology of Jim Crow and, and of racial segregation. People dehumanizing and reducing Native people to mascots and Halloween costumes is part of how we normalize the ongoing uh, maintenance of the system, right? Um, so I think that it is really important for us to operate with more of a historical awareness. That was Bree Newsom, and prior to that, Molly and Dana with moderator Robert Shetterly of Americans Who Tell the Truth speaking at an Americans Who Tell the Truth event in Blue Hill on March 29th. It was recorded by Matt Murphy. The entire two-hour presentation will be archived along with today's program at weru.org. 
I'm Amy Brown. Join me here for Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture on the first Thursday of every month at 10 o'clock here on WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and WERU.org. And keep it tuned here for On the Wing coming up next.